Sam put his ragged orc cloak under his master's head and covered them both with the grey robe of Lorien. And as he did so, his thoughts went out to that far land, and to the elves, and he hoped that the cloth woven by their hands might have some virtue to keep them hidden beyond all hope in this wilderness of fear. He heard the scuffling and cries die down as the troops passed on through the Eisenmouth. It seemed that in the confusion and the mingling of many companies of various kinds, they had not been missed. Not yet at any rate. Sam took a sip of water, but pressed Frodo to drink. And when his master had recovered a little, he gave him a whole wafer of their precious whey bread, and made him eat it. Then, too worn out even to feel much fear, they stretched themselves out. They slept a little in uneasy fits, for their sweat grew chill on them, and the hard stones bit them, and they shivered. Out of the north from the black gate through Kirith Gorgor there flowed whispering along the ground a thin, cold air. In the morning a grey light came again, for in the high regions the west wind still blew, but down on the stones behind the fences of the black land the air seemed almost dead, chill and yet stifling. Sam looked up out of the hollow. The land all about was dreary, flat and drab-hued. On the roads nearby nothing was moving now, but Sam feared the watchful eyes on the wall of the Eisenmouth no more than a furlong away northward. Southeastward and far off like a dark standing shadow loomed the mountain. Smokes were pouring from it, and while those that rose into the upper air trailed away eastward, great rolling clouds floated down its sides and spread over the land. A few miles to the northeast, the foothills of the Ashen Mountain stood like somber gray ghosts behind which the misty northern heights like a line of distant cloud hardly darker than the lowering sky. Sam tried to guess the distance and to decide what way they ought to take. It looks every step to fifty miles, he muttered gloomily, staring at the threatening mountain. And that'll take a week if it takes a day with Mr. Frodo as he is. He shook his head. And as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart, and always until now he had taken some thought of their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best their provision would take them to their goal, and when the task was done, there they would come to an end. Alone, houseless, foodless in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. Sam, to help Mr. Frodo to the last step, and I with him. Well, if that's the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton, and our brothers, and the Kaffir and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr. Frodo on this errand if there hadn't been any hope of his ever coming back at all. Things all went wrong when he went down in Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, 
as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. With a new sense of responsibility, he brought his eyes back to the ground, near at hand, studying the next move. As the light grew, a little he saw to his surprise that what from a distance had seemed wide and featureless, flats were in fact old, broken and tumbled. Indeed, the whole surface of the plains of Gorgoroth was pocked with great holes, as if, while it was still a waste of soft mud, it had been smitten with a shower of bolts and huge sling stones. The largest of these holes were rimmed with edges of broken rock, and broad fissures ran out from them in all directions. It was a land in which it would be possible to creep from hiding to hiding, unseen by all but the most watchful eyes. Possible at least for one who was strong, and had no need for speed. For the hungry and worn, who had far to go before life failed, it had an evil look. Thinking of all these things, Sam went back to his master. He had to rouse him. Frodo was lying on his back with eyes open, staring at the cloudy sky. Well, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, I've been having a look around and thinking a bit. There is nothing on the roads, and we'd best be getting away while there's a chance. Can you manage it? I can manage it, said Frodo. I must. Once they started crawling from hollow to hollow, flitting behind such cover as they could find, but moving always in a slant towards the foothills of the northern range. But as they went, the most easterly of the roads followed them, until it ran off, hugging the skirts of the mountains, away into a wall of black shadow far ahead. Neither man nor orc now moved along its flat grey stretches, for the Dark Lord had almost completed the movement of his forces, and even in the fastness of his own realm, he sought the secrecy of night, fearing the winds of the world that had turned against him, tearing aside his veils, and troubled with the tidings of bold spies that had passed through his fences. The hobbits had gone a few weary miles when they halted. Frodo seemed nearly spent. Sam saw that he could not go much further in his fashion, crawling, stooping, now picking a doubtful way very slowly, now hurrying at a stumbling run. I'm going back to the road while the light lasts, Mr. Frodo, he said. Trust to luck again. It nearly failed us last time. But it didn't quite. A steady pace for a few more miles, and then a rest. He was taking a far greater risk than he knew. But Frodo was too much occupied with his burden and with the struggle in his mind to debate, and almost too hopeless to care. They climbed on to the causeway and trudged along, down the hard, cruel road that led to the Dark Tower itself. But their luck held, and for the rest of that day they met no living or moving thing, and when night fell, they vanished into the darkness of Mordor, and the land now brooded as the coming of a great storm, for the captains of the West had passed the crossroads and set flames in the deadly fields of Imlad Morgul. So the desperate journey went on, as the ring went south and the banners of the kings rode north, for the hobbits each day, each mile, 
was more bitter than the one before, as their strength lessened and the land became more evil. They met no enemies by day. At times by night, as they cowered or drowsed uneasily in some hiding beside the road, they heard cries and the noise of many feet or the swift passing of some cruelly hidden steed. But far worse than all such perils was the ever-approaching threat that beat upon them as they went. The dreadful menace of the power that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless malice behind the dark veil about its throne. Nearer and nearer it drew, looming blacker, like the oncoming of a wall of night at the last end of the world. There came at last a dreadful nightfall, and even as the captains of the West drew near to the end of the living lands, the two wanderers came to an hour of blank despair. Four days had passed since they had escaped from the orcs, but the time lay behind them like an ever-darkening dream. All this last day Frodo had not spoken, but had walked half-bowed, often stumbling, as if his eyes no longer saw the way before his feet. Sam guessed that among all their pains he bore the worst. The growing weight of the ring, a burden on the body and a torment to his mind. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward on a blow, or to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look in them. And sometimes his right hand would creep to his breast, clutching, and then slowly, as the will recovered mastery, it would be withdrawn. Now, as the blackness of night returned, Frodo sat, his head between his knees, his arms hanging wearily to the ground where his hands lay feebly twitching. Sam watched him, till night covered them both and hid them from one another. He could no longer find any words to say, and he turned to his own dark thoughts. As for himself, though weary and under a shadow of fear, he still had some strength left. The Lembus had a virtue without which they would long ago have lain down to die. It did not satisfy desire, and at times Sam's mind was filled with the memories of food and the longing for simple bread and meats. And yet this waybread of the elves had a potency that increased as travelers relied on it alone and did not mingle it with other foods. It fed the will, and it gave strength to endure, and to master sinew and limb beyond the measure of mortal kind. But now a new decision must be made. They could not follow this road any longer, for it went on eastward into the great shadow. But the mountain now loomed upon their right, almost due south, and they must turn towards it. Yet still before it, there stretched a wide region of fuming, barren, ash-ridden land. Water, muttered Sam. He had stinted himself, and in his parched mouth his tongue seemed thick and swollen. But for all his care, they now had very little left. Perhaps half his bottle, and maybe there were still days to go. All would long ago have been spent, but they had not dared to follow the orc road. For at long intervals on that highway, cisterns had been built for the use of troops, sent in haste through the waterless regions. In one, Sam had found some water left, stale, muddied by the orcs, 
but still sufficient for their desperate case. Yet it was now a day ago. There was no hope of any more. At last, wearied with his cares, Sam drowsed, leaving the morrow till it came. He could do no more. Dream and waking mingled uneasily. He saw lights like gloating eyes and dark creeping shapes, and he heard noises as of wild beasts or the dreadful cries of tortured things. And he would start up to find the world all dark and only empty blackness all about him. Once only, as he stood and stared wildly around, did it seem that, though now awake, he could still see pale lights like eyes, but soon they flickered and vanished. The hateful night passed slowly and reluctantly. Such daylight as followed was dim. But here, as the mountain drew nearer, the air was ever murky. While out of the dark tower there crept the veils of shadow that Sauron wove about himself. Frodo was lying on his back, not moving. Sam stood beside him, reluctant to speak, and yet knowing that the word now lay with him. He must set his master's will to do work for another effort. At length, stooping and caressing Frodo's brow, he spoke in his ear. Wake up, master, he said. Time for another start. As if roused by a sudden bell, Frodo rose quickly and stood up and looked away southwards. When his eyes beheld the mountain and the desert, he quailed again. I can't manage it, Sam, he said. It's such a weight to carry. Such a weight. Sam knew before he spoke that it was vain and that such words might do more harm than good. But in his pity, he could not keep silent. Then let me carry it a bit for you, Master, he said. You know I would, and gladly, as long as I have any strength. A wild light came into Frodo's eyes. Stay away! Don't touch he me! He cried. It is mine, I say! Be off! His hand stayed to his sword hilt, but then quickly his voice changed. No, Sam, he said sadly. But you must understand, it is my burden, and no one else can bear it. You can't help me in the way again. I'm almost in its power now. I should not give up. And if you try to take it, I should come back. Sam nodded. I understand, he said. But I've been thinking, Mr. Frodo. There's other things that we might have to do without. Why not lighten the load a bit? We might bring that way now, as straight as we can make it. He pointed to the mountain. It's no good taking anything we're not sure to need. Frodo looked again towards the mountain. No, he said. We shan't need much on that road. And as it's... and at its ending, nothing. Picking up his orc shield, he flung it away and threw his helmet after it. Then pulling off the grey cloak, he undid the heavy belt and let it fall to the ground. And the sheath soared with it. The sheds of that black cloak he tore off and scattered. I'll be an orc no more. He cried. And I'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Let them take it if they will. Sam did likewise, and put aside his orc gear, and he took out all the things in his pack. Somehow each of them had become dear to him, if only because he had borne them so far with so much toil. 
Hardest of all it was to part with his cooking gear. Tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away. Do you remember that bit of rabbit, Mr. Frodo? He said. In our place under the warm bank in Captain Faramir's country. I'm afraid not, Sam, said Frodo. At least, I know that such things happened, but I cannot see them. No, no taste of food. No feel of water. No sound of wind. No memory of tree or grass or flower. No image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam. There is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it, even in my waking eyes. And, and all else fails. Sam went to him and kissed his hand. The sooner we're rid of it, the sooner to rest. He said haltingly, finding no better words to say. Talking won't mean nothing. He muttered to himself as he gathered up all the things that they had chosen to cast away. He was not willing to leave them lying open in the wilderness for any eyes to see. Stinker picked up that orc shirt, seemingly. And he isn't going to add a sword to it. His hands are bad enough when empty. And he isn't going to mess with my pans. With that, he carried all the gear away to one of the many gaping fissures that scored the land and threw them in. The clatter of his precious pans as they fell down into the dark was like a death knell to his heart. He came back to Frodo, and then of his elven rope, he cut a short piece to serve his master as a girdle and bind the great cloak close about his waist. The rest he carefully coiled and put back in his pack. Beside that, he kept only the remnants of their waybread and the water bottle. And Sting still hanging by his belt and hidden away in a pocket of his tunic, next his breast, the phial of Galadriel, and the little box that she gave him for his own. Now at last they turned their faces to the mountain and set out, thinking no more of concealment, bending their weariness and failing wills only to the one task of going on. In the dimness of its dreary day, few things even in that land of vigilance could have espied them, save from close at hand. Of all the slaves of the Dark Lord, only the Nazgul could have warned him of the peril that crept, small but indomitable, into the very heart of his guarded realm. But the Nazgul and their black wings were abroad on other errand. They were gathered far away, shadowing the march of the captains of the West, and thither the thought of the Dark Lord was turned. That day it seemed to Sam that his master had found some new strength, more than could be explained by the small lightning of the load that he had to carry. In the first marches they went further and faster than he had hoped. Their land was rough and hostile, and yet they made much progress and ever the mountain drew nearer. But as the day wore on and all too soon the dim light began to fail, Frodo stooped again and began to stagger, as if the renewed effort had squandered his remaining strength. At their last halt, he sank down and said, I'm thirsty, Sam, and did not speak again. Sam gave him a mouthful of water. Only one more mouthful remained. He went without himself. And now, as once more the night of Mordor closed over them, through all his thoughts there came the memory of water, and every brook or stream or fount that he had ever seen under the green willow shades of twinkling in the sun danced and rippled for his torment behind the blindness of his eyes. He felt the cool mud about his toes, 
as he paddled in the pool at Bywater, with Jolly Cotton and Tom and Nibs, and their sister Rosie. But that was ten years ago, he sighed, and far away. The way back, if there is one, goes past the mountain. He could not sleep and held a debate with himself. Oh, come now. We've done better than you hoped, he said sturdily. Began well anyway. I reckoned across half of the distance before we stopped. One more day will do it. And then he paused. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came an answer to his own voice. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on much longer giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go on a good way through. And I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. But what then, Simganji? What then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. To his dismay, Sam realized that he had not got an answer to this. He had no clear idea at all. Frodo had not spoken much to him of his errand, and Sam only knew vaguely that the ring had somehow to be put into the fire. Of he muttered, the old name rising to his mind. Well, if Master knows how to find them, I don't. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless, he said to himself. You are the fool going and hoping and toiling. You could have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. But you died just the same or worse. You might just as well lie down and give up never get to the top anyway. I'll get there if I leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam. And I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart. So stop arguing! At that moment, Sam felt a tremor in the ground beneath him, and he heard or sensed a deep remote rumble as of thunder imprisoned under the earth. There was a brief red flame that flicked under the clouds and died away. The mountain, too, slept uneasily. The last stage of their journey to Orodruin came, and it was a torment greater than Sam had ever thought that he could bear. He was in pain, and so parched that he could no longer swallow even a mouthful of food. It remained dark, not only because of the smokes of the mountain. There seemed to be a storm coming up, and away to the southeast, there was a shimmer of lightnings under the black skies. Worst of all, the air was full of fumes. Breathing was painful and difficult, and a dizziness came on them so that they staggered and often fell. And yet their wills did not yield, and they struggled on. The mountain crept up ever nearer, until, if they lifted their heavy heads, it filled all their sight, looming vast before them, a huge mass of ash and slag and burned stone, out of which a sheer-sided cone was raised into the clouds. Before the day-long dusk ended and true night came again, they had crawled and stumbled to its very feet. With a gasp, Frodo cast himself on the ground. Sam sat by him. To his surprise, he felt tired but lighter, and his head seemed clear again. No more debates disturbed his mind. He knew all the arguments of despair and would not listen to them. His will was set, and only death would break it. He felt no longer either desire or need of sleep, but rather of watchfulness. He knew that all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. 
the next day would be a day of doom. The day of final effort or disaster. The last gasp. But when would it come? The night seemed endless and timeless. Minute after minute falling dead and adding up to no passing hour. Bringing no change. Sam began to wonder if a second darkness had begun and no day would ever reappear. At last he groped for Frodo's hand. It was cold and trembling. His master was shivering. I didn't ought to have left my blanket behind, muttered Sam. And lying down, he tried to comfort Frodo with his arms and body. Then sleep took him, and the dim light of the last day of their quest found them side by side. The wind had fallen the day before as it shifted from the west, and now it came from the north and began to rise. And slowly the light of the unseen sun filtered down into the shadows where the hobbits lay. Now for it! Now for the last gasp! Said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will, he staggered up, and then he fell upon his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom, towering above him. And then, pitifully, he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered. And I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can't carry you, and it is well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosed about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet, and then to his amazement he felt the burden light. He had feared that he would have barely strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that he had expected to share in the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting, and sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than if he were carrying a hobbit child piggyback in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. They had reached the mountain's foot on its northern side, and a little to the westward, there its long grey slopes, though broken, were not sheer. Frodo did not speak, and so Sam struggled on as best he could, having no guidance but the will to climb as high as might be before his strength gave out and his will broke. On he toiled up and up, turning this way and that, to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward, and at the last crawling like a snail with a heavy burden on his back. When his will could drive him no further and his limbs gave way, he stopped and laid his master gently down. Frodo opened his eyes and drew a breath. It was easier to breathe up here, above the reeks that coiled and drifted down below. He said in a cracked whisper. How far is there to go? Oh, I don't know, said Sam. Because I don't know where we're going. He looked back, and then he looked up. And he was amazed to see how far his last effort had brought him. The mountain standing ominous and alone had looked taller than it was. Sam saw now that it was less lofty than the high passes of the Ethel Duath, which he and Frodo had scaled. 
The confused and tumbled shoulders of its great base rose for maybe 3,000 feet above the plain, and above them, reared half as high, again its tall central cone, like a vast oast or chimney capped with a jagged crater. But already Sam was more than halfway up the base, and the plain of Golgoroth was dim below him, wrapped in fume and shadow. As he looked up, he would have given a shout if his parched throat had allowed him. For amid the rugged humps and shoulders above him, he saw plainly a path or road. It climbed like a rising girdle from the west and wound snake-like about the mountain, until before it went round out of view it reached the foot of the cone upon its eastern side. Sam could not see the course immediately above him, where it was lowest, for a steep slope went up where he stood, but he guessed that if he could only struggle home just a little way further up, they could strike this path. A gleam of hope returned to him. They might conquer the mountain yet. Why? It might have been put there a purpose, he said to himself. If it wasn't there, I'd have to say it was beaten in the end. The path was not put there for the purposes of Sam. He did not know it, but he was looking at Sauron's road, from the Barad-dur to the Samothnaur, the chambers of fire. Out of the dark tower's huge western gate it came over a deep abyss by a vast bridge of iron, and then passing into the plain it ran for a league between two smoking chasms, and so reached a long sloping causeway that led up on to the mountain's eastern side. Thence, turning up and circling all its wide girth from south to north, it climbed at last high in the upper cone, but still far from the reeking summit to a dark entrance that gazed back east straight to the window of the eye in Sauron's shadow-mantled fortress. Often blocked or destroyed by the tumults of the mountain's furnaces, always that road was repaired and cleaned again by the labors of countless orcs. Sam drew a deep breath. There was a path, but how he was to get up the slopes to it he did not know. First he must ease his aching back. He lay flat beside Frodo for a while. Neither spoke. Slowly the light grew. Suddenly a sense of urgency which he did not understand came to Sam. It was almost as if he had been called. Now, now, or it will be too late! He braced himself and got up. Frodo also seemed to have felt the call. He struggled to his knees. I'll crawl, Sam. He gasped. So, foot by foot, like small grey insects, they crept up the slope. They came to the path and found that it was broad, paved with broken rubble and beaten ash. Frodo clambered onto it, and then moved as if by some compulsion he turned slowly to face the east, far off the shadows of Sauron Hawk. But torn by some gust of wind out of the world, or else moved by some great disquiet within, the mantling clouds swirled, and for a moment drew aside, and he saw, rising black, blacker and darker than the vast shades amid which it stood, the cruel pinnacles and iron crown of the topmost tower of Barad-dur. One moment only it stared out, but as from the great window immeasurably high, there stabbed northward a flame of red, the flicker of a piercing eye. And then the shadows were filled again, and the terrible vision was removed. The eye was not turned to them. It was gazing north to where the captains of the west stood at bay, and thither all this malice was now bent, as the power moved to strike its deadly blow. But Frodo at the dreadful glimpse fell as one stricken mortally. His hands sought the chain about his neck. Sam knelt by him, faint almost inaudibly. He heard Frodo whispering, Help me, Sam. Hold my hand. I can't stop. 
Sam took his master's hands and laid them together, palm to palm, and kissed them. And then he held them gently between his own. The thought came suddenly to him. He spotted us. It's all up. Or soon it will be. Now, Sam Ganji, this is the end of ends. Again he lifted Frodo and drew his hands down to his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Then he bowed his head and struggled off along the climbing road. It was not as easy a way to take as it had looked at first. By fortune, the fires had poured forth in the great turmoils when Sam stood upon Kirith Ungol and flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes, and the road on this side was not blocked, yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by graping rents. After climbing eastward for some time, it bent back upon itself at a sharp angle and then went westward fox apace. There at the bend, it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone, once long ago vomited from the mountain surfaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned the bend, and even as he did so, out of the corner of his eye, he had a glimpse of something falling from the crag, like a small piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. A sudden weight smote him and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that still clasped his masters. Then he knew what had happened, for above him as he lay, he heard a hated voice. Wicked master! It hissed. Wicked master cheats us! Jets He mustn't go that way! He mustn't hurt the precious! Give it to Smeagol! Yes! Give it to us! Give it to us! With a violent heave, Sam rose up. At once he drew his sword, but he could do nothing. Gollum and Frodo were locked together. Gollum was tearing at his master, trying to get the chain and the ring. It was probably the only thing that could have roused the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will. An attack! an attempt to wrest his treasure from him by force. He fought back with a sudden fury that amazed Sam and Gollum also. Even so, things might have gone far otherwise if Gollum himself had remained unchanged. But whatever dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless, he had trodden, driven by a devouring desire and a terrible fear, they had left grievous marks on him. He was a lean, starved, haggard thing, all bones and tight-drawn, sallow skin, a wild light flaming in his eyes, but his malice was no longer matched by his old griping strength. Frodo flung him off and rose up quivering. Down! Down! He gasped, clutching his hand to his breast, so that beneath the cover of his leather shirt, he clasped the ring. Down, you creeping thing! And out of my path! Your time is at an end. You cannot betray me or slay me now. Then suddenly, as before under the eaves of the Emin Wheel, Sam saw these two rivals with other vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with a hideous lust and rage, and before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white. But at its breast it held a wheel of fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone and trouble me no more. If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom. The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet at the same time insatiable desire. Then the vision passed and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on his breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet, resting on his knees with his wide-splayed hands upon the ground. cried Sam. Hail Spring! He stepped forward, brandishing his sword. Quick, Master! He gasped. Go on! Go on! No time to lose! I'll deal with him! Go on! Frodo looked at him as if one now far away. Yes, I must 
he said. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell. He turned and went on, walking slowly but erect up the climbing path. Now, said Sam. At least I can deal with you! He leapt forward with drawn blade, ready for battle. But Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. He wept. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long fleshless fingers. His mind was hot with wrath and memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature. Just and many times deserved. And also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing. Lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring. And now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Curse you, you stinking thing! He said. Go away! Be off! I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you, but be off! Or I shall hurt you! Yes, with nasty, cruel steel! Gollum got up on all fours and backed away for several paces, and then he turned, and then as Sam aimed a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him. As fast as he could, he trudged up the road. If he had looked back, he might have seen not far below Gollum turn again, and then with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes, come swiftly but wearily creeping on behind a slinking shadow among the stones. The path climbed on. Soon it bent again and, with a last eastward course, passed in a cutting along the fence of the cone and came back to the door in the mountainside. The door of the Samoth now. Far away now, rising towards the south, the sun piercing the smokes and haze, burned ominous, a dull bleared disk of red. But all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. Sam came to the gaping mouth and peered in. It was dark and hot, and a deep rumbling shook the air. Frodo! Master! He called. There was no answer. For a moment he stood, his heart beating with wild fears, and then he plunged in. A shadow followed him. At first he could see nothing. In his great need he drew out once more the file of Galadriel, but it was pale and cold in his trembling hand, and threw no light into that stifling dark. He was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron, and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers were here subdued. 
Fearfully, he took a few uncertain steps in the dark, and then all at once there came a flash of red that leapt upward and smote the high black roof. Then Sam saw that he was in a long cave or tunnel that bored into the mountain's smoking cone. But only a short way ahead its floor and the walls on either side were cloven by a great fissure, out of which the red glare came, now leaping up, now dying down into darkness. And all the while, far below, there was a rumour and a trouble as of great engines throbbing and labouring. The light sprang up again, and there on the brink of the chasm, at the very crack of doom, stood Frodo. Black against the glare, tense, erect, but still as if he had been turned to stone. Cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred spoke with a clear voice, indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use, and it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment, many things happened. Something struck Sam violently in the back. His legs were knocked from under him, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor, as a dark shape sprang over him. He lay still, and for a moment, all went black. And far away, as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samoth Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power of Barad-dûr was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye, piercing all shadows, looked across the plain into the door that he had made. And the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a vast black smoke to choke him. For he knew his deadly peril and the thread upon which his doom now hung. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran. His slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At this summons, wheeling with the rending cry, in a last desperate race there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgûl, the ring wraiths, and with a storm of wings they hurtled towards Mount Doom. Sam got up. He was dazed, and blood streaming from his head dripped in his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum on the edge of the abyss was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed, now so near the brink that almost he tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising and falling again. And all the while he hissed, but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger, the red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly, Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upwards to his mouth. His wide fangs gleamed, and then snapped as they bit. 
Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, falling upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring. A finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was wrought of living fire. Gollum cried. Brussels! My Brussels! Oh, my Brussels! My Brussels! And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek, he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail. And he was gone. There was a roar and a great confusion of noise. Fires leapt up and licked the roof. The throbbing grew to a great tumult and the mountain shook. Sam ran to Frodo and picked him up and carried him out to the door. And there upon the dark threshold of the Samoth Nahur, high above the plains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood still, forgetting all else, and gazed as one turned to stone. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it, towers and battlements, tall as hills, founded upon a mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits, Great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons, sheer as cliffs, and gaping gates of steel and adamant. And then, all passed. Towers fell and mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And then, at last, over the miles between them, came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and a rodrine breathed. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder, seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, shooting like flaming bolts, as caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky, they crackled, withered, and went out. Well, this, this is the end, Sam Gamgee. And there was Frodo, pale and worn, and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will, nor madness, nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweet days, in the Shire. 
Master! cried Sam, and fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world, for the moment he felt only joy. Great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. Oh, your poor hand, he said. And I have nothing to bind it with or comfort it. Ah, I would have spared him. A whole hand of mine, rather. But, but he's gone now. Beyond recall. Gone forever. Yes, said Frodo. But do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam, I would have not destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain. Even at the bitter end. So let us forgive him. For the quest is achieved. And now all is over. I'm glad you're here with me.